Hello and welcome to this edition of the Screen Podcast, which is the podcast for the global screen business publication, Screen International. I'm Matt Mueller, Screen's editor, and we'll be bringing you a series of podcasts across the upcoming awards season as we dive into the race for Oscar, BAFTA, and Critics Group glory. We look forward to speaking to leading contenders along the way, and I will also be joined by my illustrious Screen colleagues to give our thoughts on the season as it progresses. They will be joining me on future episodes, but first we talk to director Alejandro Gonzalez Inarritu about his latest film, Bardo, False Chronicle of a Handful of Truths, an ambitiously cinematic work about an expat filmmaker living in Los Angeles who returns to his native Mexico City. Speaking to screen contributing editor Mark Salisbury, Inarritu talks about his extended break from filmmaking following consecutive Best Director Oscar wins what it was like to shoot a film in Mexico for the first time since his 2000 debut, Amores Paros, and why he cut Bardo by 22 minutes following its Venice Film Festival premiere. The film will play in select UK cinemas from November 18th before dropping onto Netflix worldwide on December 16th. This interview took place over Zoom, so apologies for a few minor glitches along the way. Over to you, Mark and Alejandro. Hi, Alejandro. Uh, welcome to the Screen Podcast. It's been six years since you won the Best Director Oscar for The Revenant, your second after Birdman the previous year. Um, why did it take so long to get back behind the camera? And, and did winning back-to-back Oscars make financing something as kind of personal and idiosyncratic as Vardo any easier? Um, well, I think... Um... You know, after uh, Revenant, I went into uh, a project that was a virtual reality, inst- reality installation that was called Carne y Arena. It took me two years to really uh, got into uh, very deeply into the nature of the immigrants. So it was about immigration and about the crossing the border in the desert. And it was very, very haunting and harrowing experience and beautiful experience to be basically doing this with with about this theme. And uh, and I think during these years, uh, I, I like my life. I, I, I think between one film and other, normally I take a lot of time because I consider that is between a film that you, in a way, allow yourself to have the quietness, the silence, the space to really allow things to grow. <laughs> and then things find you. You know, I never finish a film with the idea to start the next one. I allow myself to suddenly be caught by something that will allow that will arrive and will I will say a film, a film normally gets me i'm not chasing films a a, a theme or something always got me and then i follow that and i become the slave of that film and i need time for that to happen so that's what happened you know i allow myself to be a little bit in silence between one film and the other and and suddenly this came to my mind And, and did winning the oscars help with the financing at all. <laughs> no, you know, the Oscars, in a way, people has a very, mis- I don't know, uh, in a way, this film was, this film, uh, it took me uh, two years uh, to really find financiation, you know, and because it's a personal film, it's very particular, it's not conventional, uh, it does is not based on any IP or novel, um is in foreign language you know it's in spanish 
and doesn't have like uh, world stars and uh and uh, and i didn't want anybody to read the script so it, it really possessed a lot of challenges and not you know it was not super expensive but it was not necessarily in a small film so all those circumstances made for me and for anybody uh to make this film financial financially viable or doable with complete freedom as i did so it took me a lot and uh, and it's challenging i think for people to make films like this even when you have won an oscar or not is extremely challenging extremely challenging so you said that bardo isn't autobiographical per se but as you mentioned it's incredibly personal and it's based on experiences anecdotes thoughts reflections emotions you've had and obviously the main character looks like you he's a journalist and filmmaker who left Mexico with his family to live in the US which is what you did um it, he's, he's sort of grappling with issues of identity working out where he belongs uh, the couple in the film have lost a child, uh, like you and your uh, your wife did. Um, and there are lines that the main character's late father said that your father said to you. Um, so if it's not autobiographical, how do you see the film? Is it a piece of kind of metafiction like Fellini's Eight and a Half? I see it as, you know, it, it required of me a, 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 a very, a, an introspection. Uh, an inward journey, right? And it came out after that, uh, during these years, as I was saying, with no structure in mind, no plan, not planned to do a conventional kind of storytelling. It was just this X-rays, an, an X-ray of memories and feelings and fears and events and comments and things suddenly all these kind of guacamole, you know, these 32 guacamole sequences became something that I was interested to portray. And it became, I will say that it's a very intimate out of fiction. You know, it's an intimate out of fiction. And, and it's true Silverio Gama, true Daniel Jimenez Cacho, that I could convey these feelings, these emotions, this flow of consciousness, because this guy is not me, but I know this guy very well. You understand what I'm saying? I can really talk of what he's going through because I have been in there. So when I deny, or when I said that it's not autobiography, is not to not assume what it is, but it's autobiographic, as I understand, in a way requires certain certainty that those events happen, right? So, I mean, it's 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 based on true uh, memories of facts that are claimed to exist. And I do not do this in this film. I just basically, I don't think that memory have truth, as the characters say, just possess emotional conviction. So it's in that emotional conviction where I put in that. And by the way, that's why I put, you know, false chronicle of a handful of truths, <laughs> which is a guideline to understand what this film is made of, you know? It's a chronicle, which a chronicle allow a lot of genres to be there without being none of them. Is that, is just, uh, is just a bunch of these kind of state of mind things, you know, a dream. It's a dream, actually. Hmm. Well, we talk about that in a second. I mean, you say that uh, you, a film has to find you or an idea has to find you. Um, what was the spark for this one? Was it a moment, a feeling, an event? 
how did the the seed grow into this um film i think the the, the quietness and the time that i spent uh, after the revenant and while doing carne y arena i think first i allow myself to have a space and silence to to like, like the soil where you can plant a seed and that seed came and i think it came and i think carne y arena had a huge impact in mind because I connected with these immigrants, no matter how successful or failure is your adventure as an immigrant, if you are a privileged one or an underprivileged one, what we thought and shared was that uneasy, very uh, elusive emotion of having lost something that you can never go back and recoup. And that is a very extraordinarily uh, sensation that whoever has not lived is very hard to grasp what is that. So I think that thing triggered in me the need to explore that and suddenly realizing how do I got here? What, what happened? I, I barely remember my childhood. I barely, I have a blurry images of that. I, I unfortunately not one of those lucky people that can put themselves in a position to observe clearly and certain certainty the events that happen and that's the foundation of their beings. I can't. It's just maybe these last 20 years that could inform me possibly who I was, I why why I'm who I am. And I wanted just to make sense of that in a desperate way, to make sense of where I want and I took the courage to speak for the first time after many times that I have speak in films about immigration, what was my personal experience to talk about very universal themes as I do, you know? So anyway, I don't know if I answer your questions. It's a complicated answer, you know, there's, there's no easy answers. You've talked about the film or the process of making the film as, as being one of healing. Um, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I think, as I said, I think when you are, when you go inside yourself and, and I try to be as honest I, as I could and, and in a way be faithful to those memories and those th things that I thought has been in, very important for, uh, that has shaped me and my family and our Mexico and our Mexican identity as a collective memory, all those things in a way I wanted to be very truthful to them, no matter how painful they were. But I liberate myself by laughing of them and suddenly having that pers you know, perspective and distance in where I can really see the light. There's a beautiful line in a Leonard Cohen song that says, you know, uh, 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 the, uh, uh, it's like, there's like, there's like a, um, it's like when a, when a wall is broken, it's in the, in the, in the song that is anthem, that is like, a, there's always a broken wall. Uh, can you say how, how Grieta is, is called? I don't remember what's the name of that. But anyway, there's always like a broken side of it, but that's where the lights come in. You understand what I'm saying? What I'm saying is like, is like for me, it was a, a crack. There's a crack in everything. And that's where the lights came in. And for me was to see clearly that crack. And I saw the light coming from that. And it was a liberating experience, a healing one for me and my mem and my family 
So liberation, cathartic and healing thing of reassure that what we have there, it's something that is truthful. No matter if, if it's right or wrong, you like it or not, that doesn't matter. It, it was a need and it's healing to confront your fears and your vulnerabilities. And I opened my wounds and that's it. That's liberating, you know. And, and how did your did you discuss the content of the film with your family as you were writing it? Yes, 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 I, I did. But they were incredibly generous, respectful, and they gave me the space and the freedom to express myself as I wanted. And obviously they have their comments about things, but they were sweet and, and gentle and, and they were very wise. As I think my daughter, my wife and my son, their comments were always very useful, but never uh, manipulating or forcefully, you know, they, they were really giving me another version of their own experience. And I learned from them a lot. It was beautiful. Hmm. Um, so obviously with this film, you went back to filming Mexico for the first time since 2000 when you made Amores Pedos. Um, how did, how was that experience going back to your, your home country? Did it differ much from the two films? I mean, there's that amazing scene where you, the main plaza is, is you know filled with bodies and you, your characters talking to Cortez. Um, just just talk to me about filming in Mexico again. How you found that? Well, as you know, Mexico is in a is in a state of mind. As I have said, it's not a city; it's a state of mind. So going back was basically uh, uh, like to meet a new old friend, right? Uh, and and obviously. The city that I left, the streets that I left, doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and and the, the 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 guy that they remember as I was twenty years ago, I am not that guy anymore because a lot of things has happened. And and the encounter and the expectations of that is really an interesting kind of thing. And that's what the film is about. And by me having that experience as I was shooting with all this great joy of the encounter but with the contradictions and paradox of it it was reaffirming and reinforming me about what the film was about and helped me to make to reassure that what i was talking was real and complex and needed because it was a physical experience that was talking metaphysically about what this character was going through as i was going through as i was making the film so it was a mirror in a mirror in a mirror in a mirror. So it was a fantastic, a fantastic and challenging and beautiful and intense experience, I have to say. So on this film, you work with Darius Konji as your director of photography. And it's the first time I think you've collaborated with him. Obviously, Chivo, Manuel Lebeski shot The Revenant and Birdman. Um, why was Chivo not available for this? Or do you feel like you need like an outsider's eye on, on Mexico? Chivo was not available, and I always wanted to work with Darius, which I think is maybe one of the best with Chivo and Rodrigo Prieto photographers in the world. And it was like to meet a, a brother, you know. It was an incredible collaboration since the first day that we spoke in the phone, 20 minutes, he was in, and we were talking already about light and the lenses. <laughs> and, and, and even without reading the script, he was in because we connected. It's like to find a brother late in life, you know? So, no, it was a joy. And, uh, you know, I think every frame that, uh, 
that we achieve and Darius designed with light, uh, it's just a dream. You know, it's it's it was an incredible experience for me. You know. Mm. So the screening that I went to, you came and introduced it, and you said to let yourself go, to uh, not demand logic, uh, that dreams don't require logic. And you mentioned Darius and dreams just now. Um, can you talk about creating that dreamlike state uh, for the audience? Um, you know, in terms of the cinematography, in terms of the sound, in terms of the, the set design? Um, it was, uh, you know, I think that now uh, this film, to make something elusive and, and, and metaphysically, uh, uh, to experience this kind of metaphysical, sensorial, visual thing, it requires on me... It, you cannot improvise that. So it required a huge amount of work, preconception of how to, to project a dream because a dream is not a crazy hallucination, right? When we dream, things are really real, but there's somebody there that should not be there. There's always something off in a, in a weird way, but it's not obvious, right? So the atmospheres and the dimensions of a dream are always very particular. So to really get into that, we cannot really underestimate the power of our subconscious. So to get into the subconscious when you are conscious is an exercise that requires a lot of, of, of mindful uh, uh, decisions. So it cannot be improvised. That's what I'm saying. It's not crazy. Actually, it's it's a serious thing in a way that it took it demanded me a lot of control in the blocking. I did storyboards for every single frame in the in, in every single sequence. It's 32 sequences that were precisely designed. Uh, draw uh, every location was rehearsed with standings with actors, camera moves lighting uh, directions every word with every step every internal rhythm of the camera with the actors was completely rehearsed and every element of the production design the design with Eugenio Caballero and the colors the palette with Ana Terrazas Vivian Mayer was a great reference Paul Delvaux the painter uh, um, uh, Kiriko uh, um, uh, Magritte uh, you know, a lot of visual reference that we're taking to really try to be inspired and create a sensation of a dream. It was a huge work of pre-production. This film, I was in pre-production for two years. Every frame really took me a lot. And obviously the visual effects and the special effects inside, it took a lot of pre-production and planning, you know, to make that happen. So in order that you feel that the camera is floating and everything is dreamy, is super challenging. No, no film has challenged me as this one. Not even Revenant, but, but you know, at all. So, um, if we have time, I'd like to talk about a couple of uh, sequences. The first, uh, and again, with, without spoiling it for our listeners who may have not seen the film yet, is um, when your lead character comes to immigration in the U.S. and has an argument with the uh, the passport uh, officer about calling America home um that felt have you had that argument it felt like it was really straight out of your life I have been with that argument all my life during 15 years I was sent to secondary revision because I have a reckless driving in 2003 
So until 2016, every time that I arrived to the United States, I was sent to secondary revision for that particular thing that I did years before. And every time that I had to go back to Tijuana to renovate my O-1 visa with my family, we were put in the car four hours in the sun. And sometimes officers were really nice, but some of them were really tough. They do not look to you at the eye. And they just really can be, some of them can be really tough. And some of, and some of them has these, you know, uh, roots in, in, in Mexican roots. They, they, they are from sometimes from Mexican origins. But, but this scene that you saw is exactly what happened to my wife, L letter by letters. I mean, uh, I, I literally borrow from my wife experience exactly that scene happened to my wife as it is written, word by word. So, yeah, it's true. So, I mean, the thing is, me or you, when you arrive to a country or something like that, where you think that you belong, it's, it's really, really stunning that a little piece of paper, the way somebody can interpretate a question or an answer or a paper, your life or your identity or your, your it's, it's, it's hang on that little fragile moment, you know, and and that's what happened. You know, you, you think that you belong to a place, as Silverio said, but maybe you don't belong to any other place because when you return back, there is no way back home. So that's battle. And that scene particularly form about that, that nature, you know. So where is home for you now? Is it still America or is it Mexico? I mean, or is it the, both countries? Where, where do you consider home having made this film? Home is where my family is, honestly. I, I adapt to every culture. I love the otherness. I, I feel comfortably in, in any place. But I learn that geographically, I become uh, a gypsy in a way. So there's an every culture that is being now in, in the world of people that, because the globalization is growing everywhere with different people getting married from different ancestors and kids growing in different places. So in a way has become a third culture existent. And I belong to that. And I learn that this home is where my family is. That's it, you know. So the other sequence I want to talk about uh, very briefly is that incredible, incredibly long take on the dance floor, that the dance sequence. Um, just take me through the process. Obviously, there's the moment where he's dancing and David Bowie's Let's Dance comes on and you drop the music out and it's just the vocals and he's sort of singing in his head. Can you just briefly talk about, you know, the idea behind that sequence and how difficult was it to, uh, to make? Because it's, you know, probably 100, 150 extras in that room. 700. <laughs> yeah, it was, a, and in the middle of the pandemic with masks, I mean, sweaty and hot as hell. So it was very scary. But uh, no, for me, that scene is about, when he goes back to Mexico, obviously he and his, and his daughter too, that she said, it's all what never happened. It's all what we lost, right? So he's haunted by all the things that he has been missing, but he's haunted by the feeling of his father and the mother that is having dementia and all the people that disappear and all the, you know, the, all those things that haunted, but I want him to too, that he recouped the joy and the incredible energy and color and passion and music and cumbia and the, the, the joy uh, and electricity that Mexico has it to, which is 
super powerful. And I want him to recoup that joyful feeling to be in this space where all these things in a way are conveying at the same time. And at the, at the same time, I wanted to get a joyful moment with the family and friends and then go into his interior minds in order that we can go into his self-conscious into, into his flow of consciousness because as you understand the film is being told as the end of the movie revealed from a very particular point of view that I wanted to go in there and I want to go inside and that's why you know when you remember a song that you love and you mumble the lyrics you extract the music and I want that there's three four times that I did that as if I am going into his consciousness and his memories and he's mumbling these words with no music and go inside him and he just liberate from any existence and go into his soul and that's what for me this film this moment was to go into a joyful moment in his very intimate interior and that's the way I decide to portray it in this one shot that it was super difficult to block and to achieve, but it was so exhilarating when we got it that I was very happy about it. You know, it's an incredible sequence. Um, I mean, the film premiered, or since the film premiered at Venice, uh, you've you cut twenty two minutes out of it. Um, it's not that you cut films out; you put things back in. Um, is that a case of you had a deadline to reach for the Venice? premiere and so you rushed to finish the film and you didn't finish it properly or was it a result of some people saying they thought it was a bit too long no I think that I was put under the wall against the wall because visual effects arrived very there were very challenging visual effects and they arrived very late and I finished the film two days before I leave to Venice so the first time after living for five years in my interior intimate life this film with me I never saw it with people in a theater. Never. I was very close. To it. So when I saw it for the first time was in Venice with 2000 people. And I immediately in during the screen, I was identifying things that I could make it, that I can synthesize things that acupuncturally I can help since to get a little late, to leave a little before to get a better internal rhythm of certain scenes. So the film is exactly the same. I challenge anybody to tell me what I edited. It is, it's almost invisible. It's just, it's the, it's the same intact essence of the film. It's just that I helped to shape uh, the film in a better way because I knew at that moment that I could do that because it was the first time that I was experienced. And that's where a film really revealed itself and exists when it's shown to the people. And I was part of that experience. And nobody knows much better the film than I. And if I could be editing the film forever, I will do it. There's no, the process of editing never ends actually. It's just, you just have to commit it to a certain date to release or a festival. But honestly, it's an endless process to, to be taking shape, you know? But anyway, I did it because I knew I, I need to do it, not by anybody's uh, expectations, you know? Mm. Um, so final question, Alejandro. Um, during your talk at the London Film Festival, you said, um, it's the best film I've done. It will be very difficult to make a better film than this. And in a for recent anti fair me. <laughs> Yeah, for me, you know, for me to make a, a film like this will be impossible. Sorry, sorry, I, I interrupt you, sorry. No, it's fine. Uh, and in a recent Valentine's Fair interview, you suggested that you might not make another film. 
Um, so, uh, you know, given today we're in in October, what are your feelings about filmmaking going ahead? Is this is that the last film you will have made, or is it time? Will time kind of heal? I, 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 I take a lot of time between one film and the other. I allow myself to have that space that I told you. I, I need some silence and quietness to really, again, as I told you, a film got you. So I, I, honestly, it's like I have had a huge full meal. So I'm not thinking what I want to have lunch uh, later. You know what I mean? I, I'm not hungry. So in a way, for me, I don't know if I will be really, really with the energy. Because I think for me, this film has been uh, like a closing a cycle in my own life, in my own career. I'm not hungry. I miss my life. You know, I miss the time in, in quietness and and to be anonymous and to, you, you know, I, 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 that's what I'm starving now. For. So honestly, I don't know if I will make another film or no. At this moment, I don't have any interest at all, and uh, and that I I feel very energi energized by that because I uh, it's, it's a great feeling. You know? mm. Well, I hope that you continue to make films. Um, so thank you very much for talking uh, with us today. Appreciate it. And good luck with the film. Oh, thank you. It was my pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for having me. That brings us to the end of this episode of The Screen Podcast. Thank you to my colleague, Mark Salisbury, and to our guest for today's podcast, Alejandro Gonzalez Inaritu. And thank you very much for listening. The Screen Podcast is available to subscribe to wherever you listen. Please do rate and review us along the way to let us know how you're enjoying it. And also keep up with the latest news from the international screen industries at screendaily.com and follow us at at screendaily on Twitter. We hope you enjoyed this episode. See you next time.